I have two, I have two buttons to push and I got it right today. So it's a little confusing to me. Hi, Pat. How are you? Okay, we're going to get started today with the 119th Psalm, verse 65. 65. 65. Uh, I, I thought we did this last week. No. Nope. That's okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Was it on tech? Okay, well, then go to the next one. Good. Good. Yeah. Which is uh, arms, closed, and hand. Hand. Associated with the word hand, work, throw, worship. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me. For I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort. According to your promise to your servant, let your compassion come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wrongdoing me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me. Those who understand your statutes, may my heart be blameless towards your decrees, that I may not be shamed. Mm. Okay. Let's see here. Um, let me find where we're at. We're in Romans 6.14. And... Um, we are. Let's see. We got. Uh, I got a prayer request from Jill up in North Carolina, the one that you recommended to go to that church. Uh, she's got an aunt and uh, has had medical setbacks, and there's family stress because of it, lack of sleep, you know, people having almost nightmares because they're so stressed out over the situation with her. And then there was more information, which uh, I won't share with you, but it's just been a really tough week on her. So we want to keep her in prayer, Jill, and of course, Paul. Ah, Paul is not here, which tells us that he's still struggling, so uh, we want to keep Paul in prayer. And uh, we'll thank the Lord for all the goodness he's given us as well, because he sure is wonderful. He's given us a chance to fellowship together and uh, share in his word. And uh, we have, uh, I don't know if you all know this, some of you might not know it, but we have somebody that had a birthday this week that failed to tell us on Sunday and so uh, yeah, right? she's now had her 27th birthday as Pat there. So um, uh, happy birthday late to Pat. But uh, yeah, she, she's here on Sunday and her birthday's on Monday and never said a peep to us. So. Didn't you we mention... celebrate all week. That's, yeah, well, that's what we're doing. <laughs> Do what? Didn't Jay have one last yeah, week? Jay had one a week ago. That. Yeah, I yeah. Know, but know. if people don't tell me, I don't know. And I don't write things down. So let's go Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your precious word. How wonderful it is to uh, just be in the presence of other saints and to share it and to uh, study it and to uh, just apply it to our lives and help us to do just that, to not stray from it, to uh, hold fast to it. And uh, Lord, we do certainly pray for all of the people that uh, are missing, that are uh, out for sickness or out for Carol's back. We're very grateful that you brought her back safely from Israel, but uh, the people that are not here for one reason or another, and we pray for the lady down the road at the restaurant, ooh la la, that she's getting through her cancer and that she uh, will be back o open soon. We prayed that that would be the case, and we certainly pray for her salvation if she doesn't know you. And all of the other people that uh, are on our hearts and in our minds, we lift them up to you, Lord, knowing that you search our hearts and minds and pull out the things that even we forget, and you don't. And uh, so just search us out and know that we do care about these people, even if we fail to mention them sometimes. 
Lord, thank you again for your word, and we commit this uh, study to you, and uh, we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is the uh, last sentence in the paragraph. What's that, 614? Yes, it is. 614, let's see here. Yeah, one. Yeah, just, uh, let's see here. Yeah, start with 11. That looks like a good, oh, good place to start. Okay. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not sin, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. 14. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. You are not under law, but under grace. How, how can people not get that? You know, I did this, this sermon on the dietary laws mm-hmm. on Sunday. Oh, boy. And what was the first thing I did? I read at least 10 passages from the New Testament showing that we're not under law, we're under grace. The law is set aside in Christ, the law is an old in Christ. I went through all of that, and I said there, the reason why I'm doing this is because I want people to not make the mistake as they're going through the sermon to say, well, we're supposed to not be eating that food. It's pretty apparent, yeah. you know, with the setup, but of course, they did. not they, just one person in particular, and since then I haven't read the comments again, but I, people cannot get it. Here she says, well, the Gentiles made up that the law is over, and uh, and uh, she, she started talking about giraffes. giraffes. Giraffes, there were seven giraffes on the ark, and I'm saying, okay, Giraffes are never mentioned in the Bible, right? It, it, not the number, not on the ark, nothing. And I said, but you're going to disregard what the Bible says. I mean, people are insane. I, 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 it, I don't know. You know, this is what happens when you get away from the word and when you listen to somebody that is not willing to uh, to teach what is proper. And I'm not saying that I'm teaching what's proper. You have to decide that. But I'm saying if you go to a teacher and he says that we are still under the law, and you, then you come to Romans 6, verse 14, and says... You are not under law, but under grace. You have to wonder what they're thinking. You think that they would want to start reading their Bible and see what does that mean. But anyway, that's the importance of Bible study. That's the importance of understanding the word and not just listening to what people say. Because this person honestly wouldn't have posted that unless they believed it. But where did they get that crazy information from? Right? interesting to see where answer. Well, I, I don't want to read their answer. I, I, I have no desire to read people's. Once you say something and they come back and argue a second time, it's not worth going on. It's just not. So uh, that's what we call one chance. That's it. One chance. We don't play scripture tennis. I don't back and forth Uh, with people. You you just, you know, what I tell people when they do things like that, they'll challenge you on something you say during a Bible study or go start your own sermon. You know, do your own thing. See how many people agree with you. Right. And it gets debilitating after a while hearing this type of thing again and again. Somebody making a presentation. And if you disagree with them, go on to the next one. Right. And next week, maybe I'll say something of value to you. But I, it just people just beat things over other people's head and it's not worth the effort. So, Tom, uh, you doing OK this week? Yes. Good. All right. And um, I, I need to talk to you. Steve Blazing needs me to get some information. So don't let me forget before you go home. All right. Um, OK. So anyway, we'll go into our evaluation here. And sorry for complaining. But, you know, it just after a while, it just it wears you out. You know what? What is wonderful is to be in a church where there are people that. You know, we'll send you an email out of the blue and say, I'm just thinking of you today, you know, or that's that's so nice. But anyway, um, the Bible, verse 614, you're not under law, you're under grace. The Bible teaches that man was granted dominion over the beasts of the earth. 
you know, while doing that sermon, this is just kind of one of those things, um, uh, dietary laws, you know, you type in, you want to look at maybe putting a photo into the uh, sermon about dietary laws. And so you just type in Israel dietary laws and you get all of these things that come up like pictures of animals and it says, thou shalt not kill. And it's by the Vegan Society of America or something. You think, oh <laughs> little bit out of context there, but anyway, um, I, we have dominion over the beasts of the earth. That is explicit in the thou Bible. Thou shalt not murder. Yeah, thou shalt not murder. Exactly. This is implicit in the naming of the animals in Genesis two. By saying you are to name these animals, it means that you have a dominion over them. That's implicit. When a king renames a subject, like he did with um, uh, Daniel and the, the three men with him. It means that he has authority over them, right? That is an implicit, uh, it, it's not explicitly stated, in other words, in the Bible, but it's an implicit note of authority over somebody else. When you name something, when the Lord gives his name, that means that he is nobody above him. He is, the, as it says about Jesus, the name above all names. There is nobody that names him. He possesses his own name in his own title. He can bestow any name on anybody. And guess what? In the book of Revelation, it says that we will all be given a new name, implying that he has authority over us forever. Okay? So, anyway, when one names, oh, here it is. When one names something, it is because they have the rule and authority over it. Despite this rule, man is himself a being which is ruled. The original intent of man is that God would rule over him and that the two would walk in fellowship. Hello. Hello. How are you? However, the devil swayed man from the friendly rule of God to his personal destructive rule. God's rule is one of grace and abundance. The devil's rule is one of sin and corruption. Everybody got that? I mean, it's very evident in the pages of the Bible. John tells us the main reason for Jesus' coming was to correct our state to its original intent. That's in 1 John 3, 8. I've read it many times before, and we'll just go there very quickly. This is the main reason why Jesus came. Jesus said, I have come to give you life that you may have it more abundantly. I've come to do this, and I've come to do that. But you can sum up every single one of those things in 1 John 3, verse 8. It says, um, he who sins is of the devil. Third page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, man fell. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, and then he says, for this purpose, this is it right here, for this purpose, the Son of Man, Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Every single other, he has come for this reason, or I have come for this reason, or anything you find in the Bible will be summed up within that statement right there. The devil caused us to fall. We are under the authority of the devil. Christ came to undo that, to put us back or to allow us to be put back under his rule. Not actively doing it, as uh, some people would say, because if that was the case, why wouldn't he just put everybody under his rule and say, here? Instead, he doesn't. He says, come to me, and I will be your Lord. I will be your Savior. I'll be your Redeemer. All of these things. He gives us the voluntary will to do that. That doesn't mean everybody isn't ultimately under his rule. It says, you know, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, and every uh, tongue shall proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But... That would be, they are under the rule of the devil, and he has defeated the devil. Now these people will realize that before they're cast into hell. Anyway. Um, you can see where people get confused. This is what follows in 9. Whoever has been born of God did not sin. Right. And his deeds and his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. Right. Because he was born of God. So some people will say. Well, we're not under law. 
Well, I understand that. Right. And but, so you can't but, sin. If there's no law, then there's no transgression. Right. And so that's what that's, I understand people will misanalyze right. that, and you'll get a million commentaries on there. But that is the ultimate thing. If we have moved into Christ, we are no longer under law. We're under grace. And law is, they, how does it say it, um, uh, Romans, uh, um, uh, with the, basically with the introduction of law, sin is known. Okay, that's when transgressions come about. If you're not under law, then you do not sin. Now, that doesn't mean, as he explains elsewhere in 1 John and elsewhere, that we do sin against God when we sin. But we are covered in Christ's righteousness, and so it is not counted against us. God is not counting men's sins against him. What, what verse is that? Um, uh, come on now. Um, God was reconciling the world to himself. Um, uh, it's in Romans. We'll get there eventually, or we've already gone through it. But anyway, man, God is not reckoning man's sins against him in Christ Jesus. So you had a question? Yes. Okay. You, you said this law of uh, authority. State that was a law? Is this? Well, all people are under the devil until they come to Christ. All people are under the devil. Okay. He, what does it say in uh, Luke right here? Um, hang on a second. Just hold on. Um, it says in Luke, um, he's uh, when he tempted uh, Jesus, he said, um, and Jesus says it too in John three eighteen. But um, in Luke, uh, hang on, give me just a second to get there. Uh, no, 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 not four. Is that the temptation? It is four. Hang on. It says, um, um, here it is. And the devil said to him, Luke 4, 6. Thank you. Chapter 4. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. All of it. Everything on the earth, every person on the earth, everything belongs to the devil. Jesus didn't question it. He simply defeated the devil, and it, he reclaimed the right to all of it. But if you are not in Christ, you are in the devil, 1 John 3, 8 and John three eighteen, He does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because they belong to the devil. Okay? And that's why Jesus said to the people in Israel, you are of your father, the devil. All people are in one or the other. You're either in the devil or you're in Christ. And that's not a happy thing to consider because most people say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Or, you know, they, they get into the bell curve and they grade themselves against other people. The fact is that they're all on this side of the, uh, the uh, stage until they come to Christ and move over here. They're all separated from God. So the devil has authority over the world. and uh, But the devil is bound by what the Lord allows him. That's in Job chapter 1 explicitly. But, yes, he has control over all things. All this authority has been given to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. He didn't argue it. He didn't question it. He simply went and did his own thing and defeated the devil because he prevailed where Adam failed. And when Adam failed, man went into sin. The devil is in control of all sinners, right? So that's the premise there. Anyway. Um, okay, so where were we? 1 John 3, 8. And we are, oh, here it is right here. Next sentence. We are either under God's rule or under the rule of the devil. There are no other options in the Bible. None. There's, it's just one of the two categories. If we are under the devil, then sin has dominion over us. We are slaves to it. However, when we accept Jesus' work by faith, we move to the proper and originally intended rule of God. Okay? 
There's no law, and therefore there can be no transgression. We're not under law. We're under grace. We are under God's grace. I like that rule better than law. Well, well, there you go, rule or law. You know, if you go to the NIV, the 119th Psalm, and then you go to the NASB, and then you go to the New King James Version, they will translate the same word differently. One will say precept, one will say um, uh, instruction, one will say law. And the reason why is because they don't want to copy each other and violate their, uh, what do you call copyright, and so they have to... You know, what are we going to call this word? What are we going to call that word? And they're, sometimes they're not even consistent within the psalm itself. They'll take the same word and translate it differently. So you just have to kind of watch translations. And, you know, we saw that in the book of Jonah it, very plainly. They would take something and they kind of, kind of equivocate on the meaning of it when they're translating it. And you come out with something that has a completely different meaning. So um, anyway, uh, let's see here. Uh, when we accept Jesus' work by faith, we move to the proper and originally intended rule of God, and we're to become slaves to righteousness and live under his grace. Okay, once again, we're not under law, we're under grace. The dominion of the devil, which is one of sin, is realized because of law. Like I said, if you have a law, then you can violate that law. If you violate the law, and it's God's law, then you have transgressed the law, and you are now under somebody else's authority. Okay. It's uh, where there is no law, there is no transgression. But there was a law, and man broke the law, thus receiving his just condemnation. Exactly what the Lord said would happen is what happened. However, Jesus never broke the law, thus fulfilling it. He took God's law, the Ten Commandments, and the other parts of the law of Moses, and he lived it perfectly, and he fulfilled it. Once again, just a, a, a little diversion, but I say it from time to time, is I think I've said it probably every Bible study for the past, uh, uh, since we got into Romans, is you take the law and you say, well, Jesus fulfilled the law. And everybody says, yes, I agree with that. And then they will tell you that the all feasts of the Lord are not fulfilled, that they are coming later. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus didn't fulfill the law. It's one plus one either equals two or it doesn't equal anything, Okay. Jesus fulfilled the law. Every single thing in the law of Moses is done. He fulfilled the feast of Rosh Hashanah. He fulfilled the feast of Yom Kippur, and he fulfilled the feast of Sukkot. They're all fulfilled in him. As I said, we will have celebrations of those things. We'll have memorials for those things, but they are fulfilled. When somebody teaches that the fall feasts are still ahead, they always equivocate on the meaning of the feasts. They'll start out at the beginning and they'll say, these are my feasts. These are the feasts of the Lord from Leviticus 23. That's what it says right in verse 1 or 2. It says, these are my feasts. And they'll say all the way through it, these are the feasts of the Lord. These are the feasts of the Lord. But when they get to their analysis of the fall feasts, because they believe that the rapture is prefigured in the Rosh Hashanah and all these other things, they suddenly equivocate and they say, these are the feasts of Israel. You have to do that because if they're the feasts of the Lord, then they're fulfilled in Christ. Right? So always pay attention to when people do a study, what they say. And you will hear them change the meaning in order to come to a different conclusion because of a presupposition. The presupposition is that the feast of uh, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah, according to the Bible, is a picture of the rapture. It's not. It never was. And it, it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen on that day. <laughs> But it is not a picture of the rapture. It's a picture of something else. And we'll be there very soon. Leviticus 23, we're in Leviticus uh, 11 right now. And so it won't be that long. And I think, not next week, but the week after that, I can't remember, but I'll be typing Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement Rituals. 
anything could not be clearer than that Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, is fulfilled in Christ. When we get done with that, you're going to say, no doubt about it. And if it is, the rest of them are too, okay? So because they're all fall feasts. Anyway, I'm talking about Yom Teruah, um, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. They're all fall feasts. If one of them is fulfilled, they're all fulfilled. So um, once again, there, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Christ never broke the law. He fulfilled it. When we move to him from Adam, we're moving to Christ, the law is fulfilled, and we can never be judged by it again. That's why Paul says you are not under law, you are under grace. If you were under another law, then you wouldn't be under grace. But Paul says very consistently all the way through his writings, we are under grace. I bet you he uses the word grace 47 trillion times. Maybe not that many, maybe it's 46, (laughs) but he uses it a lot. The Bible, does anybody know what the Bible ends on? Old Testament ends on a curse, right? Don't do the things of the law, then I will come and strike the land with a curse. The Bible ends on grace. grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It is grace. That is all that God wants us to understand. Do not reinsert the law. Do not, you know, go back into these these Old Testament things and reinsert them into your life unless you just want to enjoy them. You want to observe a Passover cedar? No problem. If you're observing a Passover cedar because you think that you are meriting God's favor, you have fallen from grace. It's either the law or it's grace, and there cannot be any harmony between the two. Okay? We have to keep reminding ourselves of that. So, um, uh, we move from him. It's fulfilled. We can never be judged by it again. We are free from the law and thus free from sin's penalty. We are under grace. Because this is true, we should endeavor to live as if it's true. This is what we're instructed. We can now live to God free from the constraints of the law and the penalty of sin. Free from the law, free from the penalty of sin. Why anybody would want to go back under the law when all that does is re-highlight the sin in their life doesn't make any sense. He's already gone down that road for us. He's already taken the cross for us. He's already died for us. And then he came out of the grave proving that it was dead. And why anybody would want to say, well, I know you did a good job there, Jesus. That was really wonderful. I'm happy that you did that. But I'm going to help you along and I'm going to make sure I'm going to earn my way to heaven despite what you've done. That is exactly what you're doing. That is exactly what you're doing. And when pastors mandate that you have to pay a tithe or when pastors say that you need to do this or, you know, um, be at church on Sunday evening, be at church on Wednesday evening and all these different things they add in. There's no grace in that. There's no grace in it at all. When you say, come unto me freely, you know, I'm talking about Jesus, and live your life for me in the manner that you feel is appropriate, honoring me, that's showing that you believe in grace, okay? You add anything else where you go to bed at night and you're neurotic about, am I saved? I Did you listen to the CD I gave you? Me? You R.C. Sproul? Yeah. Who did I give? I watched. I, give it. Yeah, I gave it to you. Okay, so you, you didn't listen to it. No, I did not. Okay. Yeah, at, at no, the uh, at mission work, I handed it right to you. It was he you. wants to get it back so he can give it to... You didn't give it to me. Yeah. No, you give it to I us. gave it to Did you listen to it? Just part of it. I haven't oh, okay. You haven't listened. Okay, so it was you first, and then you I get it. Okay. Gave it to, uh, I thought he gave it to Now I will you. be laying in bed, neurotic. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I did not get it. Okay, you didn't get it. You got it. But here's the point. 
He's going to say oh something on there which is absolutely correct. And it, it is something that everybody should take to heart, okay? I'm not condoning listening to R.C. Sproul, so it, it, that, that's not what I'm doing here. But I will read his daily table talk, and I'll listen to the things that I get once a month from him. Just because he's got some bad doctrine in one area, it does not mean that he's a heretic. I got that this past week from some person, you know. I, it, that That's insane. John Calvin wrote a mile-long commentary, right? It goes on and on and on. There's good stuff in there, and there's bad stuff in there. I'm not a Calvinist. I don't believe in 92% of his systematic theology on the doctrine of election and, and uh, predestination. It doesn't mean that he didn't write other things that are of value. R.C. Sproul talked about a lady that came to him one time, and she said, I can't get rid of my nagging feeling of guilt, of my, my feeling of guilt. And she said, I've gone to one pastor after another, and they've said that, you know, you just confess it and move on. And he said, well, I'll tell you what you should do then. You should go home, and you should ask God's forgiveness for your arrogance. And she said, what are you talking about? And she said, God's already said that he's forgiven you. You are not taking him at his word. You're ignoring his word because of your own sense of self-being, your own sense of self-worth. And he's absolutely right. I have no problem listening to a commentary like that. He is absolutely right. Somebody comes and they says, I just, I don't think God can forgive me. Then you don't think that his word is real. You have got a problem with this and you've got a problem with him. And the problem comes from your own pride in approaching him. I've got something that he can't handle. Listen to it. It's a great, great uh, thing. you got another couple days to listen to it, and after that, hand it to him. Who okay, I so thought I handed I it to you so that he can get it. That's right. And you will enjoy it. I assure you, you will enjoy it. Um, and then pass it on to somebody else, and eventually it's got to come back to me so I can let Hitako listen to it if she ever gets another CD player. But um, uh, she used to listen to him faithfully every, every uh, month when they'd come in in her old car, but her new car does not have a CD player. So, yeah, I told her she can drive my car to work, but she didn't want to drive that pickup. She, no, you know. So, yeah, well, they don't anymore. I don't know what they come with, but hers doesn't. So, Bluetooth. And she, that's not, yeah, she could hook up her phone. Yeah, that would work. Anyway, um, so we'll go on. Um, because this is true, we should endeavor to live as if it's true. Just like that woman said, or R.C. Sproul said to that woman, believe it, accept the word. It says you're forgiven, you are forgiven, okay? This is what we're instructed, and this is what we should apply to our lives. We can now live to God free from the constraints of the law and the penalty of sin. The condemnation that loomed over us is removed. Think of Israel. That's what they thought of all the time. Well, I've got to go down. I've got to make another sacrifice. I've got to ask God to forgive me again. This is, it's not just that they had it in their hearts, because they did, but they also had it in the law. You have to go down and you have to sacrifice for what you have done. And they had to carry that around with them continuously. And we've been going through Leviticus now for, I don't know, I think it's been 15 or 16 sermons, whatever it is. Would you want to live under that? Would you want to say, well, I've done it again and I've got to go down. I've got to put my hands on the head of another animal again and again and again, doing the same thing because you can't get rid of whatever it is. Think of people in the world today that suffer with porn addiction or that suffer with alcoholism or anything that can that can cause you to, you know, have a divide between you and the Lord and how difficult that is in your life. And then you've got to go down every time it comes to your mind, you've got to make another sacrifice. All, a never ending stream of blood flowing from that temple just to prove a point that you cannot be freed from that guilt. 
You cannot, you have to come through Christ. He is the end of the law for all who believe, and he is fully sufficient to completely save you. Okay? It's like so, being a Catholic where you have to go to confession. Exactly. That's and that is an exact match to what they used to go through. The Catholics have exactly the same thing. All they have done is they've taken the law and they've mixed it up into a New Testament setting and they've said, you're still under this bondage. But that is exactly what they've done. And once again, I've had several ex-Catholics in the past week email me with exactly that. I've, I'm so glad to be in Christ and to be free from the Catholicism I was raised in. Well, yeah. There you go. Another one right yeah. there. It just, it, you learn to appreciate the wonder of the Lord when you can get out of the bondage, whatever bondage it is that you are in. You know, I don't think I've ever met personally a Jehovah's Witness that got out of being a Jehovah's Witness, but if you met one, I bet he'd be a pretty grateful person mm -hmm. because he's no longer under that constant bondage that they have them in. They've got the highest suicide rate of any, they're not Christian, but any supposed Christian denomination. That ought to tell you there's something wrong in there. There's a complete lack of grace. There's total neuroses. Who wants to live that way? Who would want to live that way? Anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, we can now live to God. We're free from the constraints of the law and the penalty of sin. The condemnation that loomed over us is removed. And this is the marvel of Christ. This is the glory of what God has done for us, the beings that he created. We are his creatures, and he did this so that we could be restored to him. This is what he's done. Let us live our lives which are holy and appropriate to the exalted position to which, which we have been raised by the goodness of God. Once again, I understand the guilt that we have in our hearts. I suffer with it myself. All the past life I've gone through, all of the things I've done, I bring it to mind and I do not want to forget it because I don't want to go back to where I was. But it is done. It is washed clean in Christ. I am in Christ and when he sees me, all he sees is Christ. He sees Christ's covering because I am in Christ. That's why Paul uses the term in Christos again and again and again. In Christ. You are in Christ to show us that he is our covering. Life application. Let's see here. Our state in Christ is unmerited. And therefore, we should receive it as such with praise, honor, and right living. Let us stand fast in the freedom with which Christ has set us free to the glory of God the Father. Okay? Don't bring your burdens any further than just your own heart. Let them go. Talk to the Lord about the gratefulness you have in your heart for what he has done for you. But once again, like I say, I don't want to forget where I was, and I don't want to forget the things that I have done. But there's a difference between having that in my mind and also having the sure knowledge that I am forgiven in Christ. 100%. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want to go too far because we don't want to get into license and say that we can sin because we're under grace. And Paul's talked about that, and he'll talk about that more. Next sentence. Yes. And at the uh, same time, he is going to, um, uh, we also don't want that thing, I, that, whatever that guy is doing out there is very annoying. Um, uh, we also don't want to forget that I've forgotten what I was going to say. That he's out there revving that, that thing. And um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's very annoying, very hard to concentrate when somebody's out there. And just imagine they do that all night long out here. All these bars. Oh, yeah. I'm sure this place is just a party place all night with 25 bars within walking distance. But anyway, go ahead. 615. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Okay. Shall we because we are not under law, we're not under law, we just said that we are not under law, but we're under grace. Shall we, because we are not under law, but under grace, 
um, shall we sin? And he says, certainly not. Once again, he makes a rhetorical question and then he answers it for us. All right, 615. This verse introduces the second major section of chapter 6. Just as 6.1 entertained an outlandish question, which was responded to with certainly not, so does 6.15. Paul's second question is now given. And there's a difference between coming to Christ in order to be saved and being in Christ after being saved. When a sinner comes to Christ, there is absolutely nothing. There is nothing that he can add to that work. When you come to Christ, there is nothing you can do to merit his favor. And that's what I keep saying to people that are into these Hebrew roots movements and stuff. Probably they have not come to Christ at all. But if they have, they're going back to a law in order to be to merit God's favor and to be justified before God. And that has it's completely contrary to saying that I've accepted Jesus Christ. You have to understand that, that you are justified one time for all time by calling on Christ. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. Done. Justified. That is that is the end of that part of your redemptive process. There are other things that you will go through, but justification is one time. And that's when you say, if I, I've got to stop eating pork because I want to be saved, then you're probably not saved. Or you've forgotten it and you're going to go through a life of bondage. Paul says, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, you're a debtor to the whole law. Got to keep telling you that a million times is because it is so easy to once again reinstate something into your life and say, I need to do this. I'm not making God happy. Okay. But Paul is going into the second half of this now. All right. There's a difference between, I'm going to read it again, coming to Christ in order to be saved and being in Christ after being saved. When a sinner comes to Christ, there's nothing he can add to that work. The doctrine of salvation by grace through faith is set and it is fixed in the New Testament. Adding something to grace equates to, well, yes, works, but no grace. If you add to grace, it's not grace, right? Everybody got that? You were saved by grace through faith. If you add to it, then you're not saved by grace through faith. So there's no grace, okay? Expect, but it is works. That's correct. Expecting something more than faith means that faith alone is not sufficient. But Paul says that you were saved by grace through faith, so it must be sufficient, okay? When a person calls on Jesus, it is because they realize they cannot save themselves and they are at his mercy, okay? That's why we call on somebody to save us. I'm out in the middle of a deep, deep ocean. I'm going down and there's nothing I can do to save myself. Everybody got that picture in your mind, right? And somebody comes along and says, do you want to be saved? Yes, save me. So he throws out a rope and you grab the rope and you're saved, right? There's nothing you could have done to save yourself. You have to reach out to somebody else. That is the position we are in with Christ. We are in an infinite sea of sin and we cannot get out of that sea. It is impossible. And we say, I want out of this. I want you to do it for me, which he's already done it for us, potentially. All we need to do is actually receive it, okay? If salvation is granted based on complete dependency, I'm in the ocean and I'm completely dependent on whatever comes along, then it must be a one-time for all-time deal. Think of it. He pulls me out of the water, I'm saved. It's either one time or it's never, right? It's a one-time for all-time deal. Paul is quite clear that after salvation, there are things which are expected of us. If we can become unsaved by the things we do or do not do after salvation, then the act of salvation wasn't really by grace through faith. 
but it is. If It doesn't matter if it's today or if it's tomorrow or if it's 50 years down the line. If there's something that you can do to lose your salvation or something you need to do in order to be saved or continue to be saved, then it bears on that very first moment of salvation. It was not by grace through faith. It's either one time for all time, for all time, or it was not at all. That's how grace and that's how salvation works. One time for all time, okay? Once the pardon is granted, and once the person stands justified, then we are to live as if it's so. And so Paul asks his question, starting with, what then? He's asking this rhetorical question. This is an introduction based on the previous argument, which began in 6.1, and followed through all the way until 6.14. In essence, here's just a, a summary of what he's saying. Because of everything that has been reviewed, what is the conclusion? To demonstrate the obvious nature of what is concluded, he proposes his second outlandish question. Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And Paul's answer is, a, is an emphatic, certainly not. He's already said that we are not under law, but we're under grace. The law allows no sin at all. Grace pardons sin. Because this is so, isn't this license to sin, right? You want to ask yourself, if, if I'm under grace, then that gives me license to do whatever I want. And this is the point I was making in the last verse. That's not correct. Can't we do what we wish and expect an abundance of the grace which comes from the very fountain of grace. Okay? I've been saved by grace. I've demonstrated God's glory in saving me from all the terrible things I've done. Now, if I continue to do those terrible things, God will be more glorified. Right? Remember he brought that up a little while ago. He's already brought this up. And so, yeah. And so I can say, my goodness, I'll just keep on doing it. I'll keep on doing it, and God will receive more glory because I'm being forgiven again and again. It's showing the abundant riches of his grace. Absolutely not. This is Paul's certainly not. Believe it or not, though, this is the view of many people. We see it every week on the Prophecy Update, and it is not at all what is intended for God's people. Not at all. Such a notion is contrary to God's very nature, which is one of holiness. It should be noted, though, that there are actually two extremes which could be introduced. The first is that there is a license to sin because we're not under law, but we're under grace. Okay, that's it's called license. That would be like super free grace and I can do whatever I want. The second is that Paul says, certainly not. That we are now somehow bound again to the very law which led us to the grace of Christ. Right? You could see somebody saying that. Well, if sure. you can't do, yeah. People will take everything to an unintended extreme. Both extremes come about by taking individual thoughts or verses and tearing them out of context and without consideration to the entire scope of what he is saying. He's making this very methodical, logical argument about justification, about sanctification, about our eventual glorification. He's making it very clear. But if we take one verse or we take one concept and we run with it, all of a sudden we've got a completely aberrant doctrine. Christians are not under the law, okay? That's said how many times in the book of Hebrews? I think it's four or five times explicitly, and it's inferred at least ten more. Hebrews 7.18 is a perfect example. It's obsolete, okay, or it's set aside. In 8.13, it says it's obsolete, and it is fulfilled and nailed to the cross in the book of Colossians. That's verse 2.14, okay? However, what is also noted is that we are not free to sin. So, 
Where then does our instruction come from? If by the law sin is known, and the law no longer applies to the Christian, then how can we sin? The answer is that the New Testament writings set the standard for the Christian. All right, everybody got that? We have the Old Testament law, which is annulled in Christ, set aside in Christ, nailed to the cross. Okay, but we don't have license to sin. And so where do we get our instruction? There has to be some place that we get our instruction. That is from the hand of Paul. That is from the hand of the apostles telling us what we now do with this new grace that we have been given. Understand, though, that I remember now what I was going to say when that guy was revving the the, uh, motor, is that if we do something contrary to what the New Testament writers say, will we lose our salvation? No, we've already gone through that a moment ago. If it's dependent on anything we do after being saved, then it wasn't based on grace through faith at all, okay? But there is something else that will be affected by our bad choices, which are contrary to the words of the apostles. What is it? Rewards. Exactly. Our rewards. And so if you want to have a neurotic night and think, oh, I just can't believe I did what I did today, do it with the thought of rewards in mind. I've been doing so well for the past three years. I've really done well. I I do mission work every Saturday. I help all the old ladies across the road, and I put money in the Salvation Army thing. And every time I do it, I think of Jesus and what he did for me, right? And then I did this terrible thing today, and I've just wiped out all of those wonderful rewards I'm going to get. Let that be your neurosis, not your salvation, okay? Your rewards are something that are given to you based on the life that you live in Christ. And we're all going to face rewards and losses. Some of us will have all kinds of rewards heaped up, and some of us will have lots of stuff burned away. That's the way it is. But it is not for salvation or condemnation. There is now what? There is now no No condemnation. condemnation. That's right. That is exact. There is no condemnation. People need to make the boxes. Got a box here. Got a box here. Salvation. Rewards. Go on down the line. Make your boxes and always stick to boxes. If you think of Theology, and I, I mean that sincerely. If you think of theology in the in the idea of boxes, this box is taken care of. This box is still open. This everything should be separate. They may overlap, but every single box has something that defines its parameters. And if you keep those boxes set in your mind, you're not going to have your theology confused. It will be very very clear what's going on. But when you start mixing your boxes. That's when you start having problems and you have people posting about not eating pork on a dietary laws sermon about a fulfilled law, right? They got their boxes mixed up. Don't mix up your boxes. Okay, let's see, where was I? Um, if, by the law, uh, if by the law sin is known and the law no longer applies to the Christian, I know I've read this, then how can we sin? The answer is the New Testament writings. They are what are our standard. This is the point of the epistles to show us what is right and what is expected as followers of the Lord. And this is why the entire scope of the New Testament must be taken in proper context. Once again, boxes. Everything is a box. Everything tells you something that you need to do or not to do. All right? The epistles, I don't know how people can so want to cite Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their doctrinal sermons. I don't know how they can want to do that, because when you do that, you come to all kinds of real contradictions about your state before the Lord, don't you? 
Have you ever thought about it? Mm -hmm. Read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, and say, I'm going to apply this to my life. I'm going to apply this to my rapture theology. I'm going to apply this to my uh, whatever. You will always have contradictions in what Paul says, always. One of them says, pray that you may be found. You know where I'm going with this? Go ahead. Pray that you may be found worthy to stand before the Son of Man. Okay, I thought you were going to get that. You've, you've heard that quoted a million times in a sermon, haven't you? Pray that you may be found worthy to stand before the Son of Man. Does that not contradict 100% with Paul's words? 100%. We aren't worthy, but we will stand before the Son of Man. We have been received. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot have those two thoughts compatible with each other because they are not speaking to the same group of people. They're not even speaking in the same dispensation. They are completely contrary thoughts. If you take Matthew 24 for your eschatology, your end study of end times things, and you say, I am going to use Matthew 24 for my rapture theology and for all of my other theology for the church age, you will have confused eschatology. Anytime you hear a person giving a, a, um, a prophecy update video, and he quotes Matthew, and he says, the man, no man knows the day and the hour, and he says, that's for the rapture, you have confused theology. That is all there is to it, because he is not speaking to the church. He's not speaking anything about our eschatology. He's speaking about Israel under the law, and when the church age is over, the seven years of tribulation. Do not ever let somebody try to confuse you like that. You have to keep things in their proper theological box. And if you do, it all makes sense. But we will stand before the Son of Man. We don't have to pray if we're going to be worthy of it. We are worthy, not because of ourselves, but because of the blood of Christ. Okay? Always remember that. Very, very important to get those things right. Proper context. The epistles of Paul will define the rapture for you. The epistles of Paul will define your salvation for you. The epistles of Paul will define when Christ is coming for you. He's going to define what will happen when Christ comes for you, and he will define what will happen after Christ judges you at that beam of seat. Everything is defined by him for us. Everything else belongs in another category. Okay. Now, eventually, they're all going to merge together in the end. Okay, you know that. The Jews and the Gentiles and the people under the law and the people under the dispensation of Christ and the people under the millennium, they're all going to be in the same place someday, right? I'm talking about us right now, the body of Christ, right? Okay, that's absolutely right. Just have to keep those boxes straight and everything will make so much more sense, okay? And there are times where people will send me an email and I will get myself confused as well. This is natural. This is a very big book. It's very complicated. There are children that are three years old that'll pick it up and that can be saved, right? And that there are people that have doctoral d degrees, two and three doctoral degrees, that struggle with this book. No matter how high you are in intelligence, there's always something for you. And there's always that means there's always something beyond the guy below you. And I'm way below some of those people, right? So I'm gonna struggle with issues in here. That's natural. But if the boxes are kept straight, your theology will be kept straight as well, okay? Um, let's see here, uh, life application. Yes, we have lots of time. We are not given license to sin. Absolutely not. The epistles tell us what not to do in this new dispensation. Our salvation is a one-time event, and it is eternal. Therefore, what we do after that moment, 
after the moment of salvation falls under another category. It goes in another box, okay? Rewards and losses in the case of this life. As long as we're alive, everything that we do after salvation goes for that category. There's also other categories that go into that because in this life, while we're still alive, we're going through the process of sanctification. Thank you. So that's another thing that is happening. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about rewards and losses, but your sanctification will bear on that. The more you sanctify yourself, the more you set yourself apart as holy, the more that you do the things that the Lord would want you to do according to the epistles, then it will be reflected in your rewards and losses, won't it? Okay, it's a completely different box. It's a different category, but it bears on the other one. And as I said, sometimes categories will overlap each other. Sanctification leads to rewards and losses, but they are separate categories. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, uh, rewards and losses. The imprudent soul would squander Christ's rewards for earth's temporary fleeting vanities. Don't be imprudent with your few moments of this life. Eternity awaits. Okay? Yes? Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom yes. or liberty. Liberty. There's some has liberty there. But do, do not, not use your freedom or liberty opportunity for the flesh. That's right. But love one another. But love one another. Do not use your opportunity because we're given opportunity. Yes. Right? If we are saved by grace, we could pretty much do anything we wanted because we are saved by That's grace. But we will suffer for it. And that's why Paul exhorts us, do not live for the flesh. You know, I'm going through um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 right now, and uh, you just brought something to mind. I typed, uh, I think, verse 4 this morning. Yeah, right there. Uh, verse 3 first, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Typed that yesterday, right? So that's something that God wills for us. We are saved. He wants us to be sanctified. This will be out in 10 days, but um, um, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4, which I typed today, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That's what God is asking us to do. He's asking us to be sanctified. That goes right back to uh, what we're going to say in this week's sermon. Um, I didn't write it down yet, but it's 11, 24 through 47. And um, uh, what is the key thought of the entire book of Leviticus? You should know. The key thought of the entire book of Leviticus. 17, oh, 18, uh, 5, isn't it? No. It's 11. The key thought of the book of Leviticus. How, how do I know you should know? Because you sent it to me. Right? <laughs> All right, I'm going to read it to you. Hang on a second. Um, where is this? What's that? Too many things on his mind. He's got a lot on his mind. But you're right. 18.5 is a very good verse, but it's not the verse. Uh, it's 11.44. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is it. That's the key thought of the book of Leviticus. He is saying that you are sanctified by me, therefore sanctify yourselves to me. And that carries over in picture into the New Testament. You are sanctified by me because in the, uh, which book is it, uh, Colossians? He says you are sanctified. It's done. The Holy Spirit has sanctified you, and yet we need to be sanctified. So be holy because I am holy. You have been sanctified. Now you sanctify yourselves unto me. And I'll talk about that a little bit during the sermon, not a great deal, and I'll repeat it in my commentary in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It ties back to your often said statement about the Duke Edico or 
married, you'll never get more married. Absolutely. You'll get more of, of each other by living. That's right. By, by allowing her into your life, then she'll get more of me. Or by her allowing me more into her life, then I'll get more of her. That's right. You are sanctified. Therefore, sanctify yourselves. You are married. Therefore, act as if you're married. Good point there. Yes. 1717, John. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thank Your word you. is truth. Absolutely. Yep. So he has sanctified us, and now we need to go and sanctify ourselves to him. What was okay. that reference in Leviticus? Again? 1144. 1144. Yep. Yep. Okay. So um, let's see here. Where are we? 16. 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to whom, to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Okay, slave of sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. Paul is so consistent in what he writes. It is, it's astonishing if, that if you just look at how he writes things, and then you go to anything else that he's written, and there's no contradictions. There's nothing that says, well, we've got an error, we've got you know a conflict here. Everything he says is logical and it's orderly. And he repeats himself sometimes, and he'll add something in, and yet it flows so beautifully. Obviously, he's under the inspiration of the scriptures uh, of the Holy Spirit, and he's writing the scriptures of God. But everything he says is just so marvelously woven together. Okay, 616. The word translated as slaves, which does yours say slaves there? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Bond yours says bondservant. Okay, a bondservant is a person who is um, under what another's so, person's authority and he is not paid for it. A bondservant is basically a slave, but there can be a difference between the two. I can make myself a bondservant under somebody else, but normally slavery is something that is forced upon you. But it's the same basic thing in the end. You are working, you're not being compensated for it, okay? Anyway, the word translated as slaves is appropriate. It comes from the word doulos. The King James Version translates this word as servants. Both should possibly be, possibly be used, though. In the matter of sin, servant doesn't carry either the force nor the intent of the matter. Okay, If you are under sin, you are a slave to sin. So using the word servant there is not a good translation. All right. However, in the matter of righteousness, a servant would be acceptable. I am making myself a servant of God to righteousness. But that's why bond servant would probably be better. You're not just a servant because he's not paying you for being righteous, right. right? You're a bond servant. You are placing yourself under his authority. You are working for him without pay. In the end, you're getting rewards and losses, but that's not what it's talking about. I'm talking about in this life, I am making myself a bond servant to Christ for righteousness. All right. So servant does not fit in the first one. It would fit in the second one. All right. Um, However, in the matter of righteousness, servant is acceptable. This verse's objective is to show the state that we are in and the state which we should be in. Humans are born into slavery. Everybody's got that one, slavery to sin. Everybody's born into it. We are born in Adam. Adam is fallen. And King David, once again, Psalm 51, shows us that we were conceived in sin. We were born brought forth in iniquity. It is done. The second we're conceived, we're already a son of Adam. We are already under the authority of the devil. Okay. (laughs) However, in the matter of, uh, I'm sorry, humans are born into slavery, slavery to sin. It is inherited and it is a bondage which we cannot free ourselves from. That's why the term slave would be much better there. We can't do anything to free ourselves. We are in that bondage and it is done. 
All right. Jesus himself shows us this in John 8, 34. Let me read that to you there. John 8, 34 says here we are. Right. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Where is that? 834. Um, if you get there, just go ahead and start reading it. But um, let's see. Yeah, Jesus answered them most assuredly. I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Verse 36, therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. He's already shown in the Old Testament that everybody is in sin, and therefore we are a slave to sin. There's no way we can get out of it, but the son can set you free. And when you set, he sets you free, you are free indeed. Okay? Everybody got that one? Okay. All right. I want to make sure that's something you all understand. We're born into Adam who sinned. We're a slave to sin. It is our station as human beings. Having said that, there were different types of slaves in the ancient world. Those who were the property of the house with no rights at all, and those who had in one way or another become bond servants. A bond servant is a person who works without pay for various reasons. One of these reasons would be a person wholly devoted to another to the disregard of their own interests. This is the concept that a bondservant of Christ would carry. Paul uses that term of himself. I believe Peter does too. A bondservant of Christ. I have wholly committed myself to this. I want no pay for it. I want no anything for it. I am simply committed my life to being a bondservant of Christ. That's my email address. I fail at being a bondservant every day, but that is what I attempt to do is to say, I don't need anything from this. If you give it to me, it is grace. All right. Paul was given things. He was taken care of in many ways, but he never asked for anything. I guarantee it. He was the kind of guy that says, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to make tenths if I have to, but I'm not going to be a burden on anybody. All right. He even says to one church, we robbed other churches so that we could serve you. That church says that they're going to take care of you. He says, okay, you can do that. And they could hardly feed themselves, but he allowed them to do that so he wouldn't be a burden on another congregation. That's the idea of being a bondservant is to say, I'm just going to put myself aside. If somebody wants to help me, that's great, but I am devoting myself to the Lord. And that's what he's doing there. As this is so, it should be clear that the, cha the change Christ has made in us is one which requires obedience, right? Do you not know is a way of saying, of course you know. It's a rhetorical question, which is being asked to simply help us think the matter clearly. And the follow-up is given in the same thought. To whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, Paul says, you are that one's slaves whom you obey. So if I obey Christ, then I'm a slave of Christ. If I obey the flesh, then I'm a slave of the flesh. That's the war that is waged in us constantly. And that's the war that Paul will speak about in chapter 7. He's going to bring that up in applying it to himself so that you can understand that he's not above the very war that he's explaining to us right now. This is what we are telling you you should do, and this is the same struggle that we ourselves have, okay? He's never exempts himself from this in any way, shape, or form. Somebody, uh, the guy uh, that takes care of the website for me, uh, <coughs> is very good about articulating things. He, he can precisely say things, and um, uh, he had, I, I may get this a little bit wrong, he had a pastor he knew or a pastor he was in a church at, and um pastor said I've reached a state of sinlessness and he says well then you've done more than Paul has haven't you right wow. obviously it's a little bit of a you know it's the kind of thing I wouldn't have thought of that quickly but he's very quick with things and he's very analytical and absolutely right if somebody comes to you and he says well I've taken care of all the sin in my life hey 
Paul right here has not taken care of all the sin in his life. He has a war, war waging in him, and you're better than he is. God's chosen vessel to carry the message out to kings and to Gentiles and to, you know, the whole Acts chapter 9. No, absolutely not. So um, let's see here. Um, it's a rhetorical question, which is being asked to help us simply think clearly on it. The follow-up is given in the same thought, which I just read, to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are the ones slaves whom you obey. Again, Jesus gives us very clear insight into this same concept in Matthew 6.24. He says, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, he says. So you're, you're doing one or the other. Now, once again, I've said when people quote Matthew in their sermons and they say you have to apply this to your life and then I quote Matthew, it makes it sound like I'm, I'm pulling a double standard. No, because the principle remains the same. Some things that Jesus says in the Gospels are principles. There's something that, uh, you look at um, Romans, we're not there yet, but Romans 15 or 16 where he, he basically repeats the, uh, the um, uh, Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five, right? They are principles which carry through. I'm talking about doctrinal issues when I say that don't listen to people that quote Matthew for doctrinal issues. He's quoting something and he says, well, uh, you know, you need to apply this to your life. And you think, but that doesn't match what Paul is saying. There are principles that will always carry through from the Old Testament, from the New, doesn't matter which dispensation you're in. But then there are certain things that do not carry through. He's speaking to one group of people for a particular reason, and it's not to be carried over into another dispensation. So once again, everything in context, and Paul says to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, what? All scripture, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful and profitable for training, instruction, and righteousness. I know I'm misquoting that, that the man of God might be mature. Okay, thank you. Anyway, um, have to go to Burke on these things, because I don't remember verses very well. But um, um, these are these are things that you should remember is that all scripture is useful. All scripture is given by God. It's all there for our instruction, but it doesn't all apply in the same manner, in the same way at all times. Okay, that's where we have to be careful with that particular precept. So, we'll go on. Um, let's see here. Mastership or ownership doesn't have divided loyalties. If you're bound to one master, then that is where your work is to be directed, right? If you're bound to another master, then that is where your work should be directed. When we were freed from slavery to sin and the ownership of the devil, we moved to the headship and authority of Jesus. Are we now slaves of Christ in the sense that we take our directions without thought? Or are we bondservants of Christ where we have or should have ourselves wholly dedicated to his headship? The answer based on the surrounding text is that we are bondservants who can choose to ignore his leadership, but that leads to Paul's conclusion. We are slaves, as he says, of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. God gives us a choice. He gives us the freedom in this dispensation of Christ to make our choices. We're of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. If I want to drink myself to death, I am not going to lose my salvation but I will lose my life, right? Even if I don't lose my life, I may lose my, is it your kidney? Liver. It's one of them, whatever. You're going to lose one of them. It's going to turn it the size of a football, and that's going to be the enemy. God doesn't interfere in that. 
You haven't lost your salvation, but I guarantee you're going to lose your joy, right? Same thing with any type of sin that you get engaged in. Eventually, it is going to come back to bite you because what God wants in us is a holy life that is dedicated to him. And he wouldn't do that if it was in any way contrary to our health and well-being. He wouldn't do it. Okay, so let's see here. Where was I? Um, uh, We've moved to the authority of Christ and we have now choices to make. Will we be obedient or will we hold on to the past? If we continue in the sins of the past, even after having been freed from sin's power, then we will suffer the death which that sin produces. As I said, alcohol, for example, will destroy our liver. See, I knew it back then. I forgot it. So we now have the ability through the process of sanctification to depart from these things and to live in the freedom for which Christ has set us free. Here is the continuation of Jesus' words. Let me go there in John 8, 35 and 36, which I've already read, but I'm going to read it again. Hang on a second here. John 8, 35 and 36, he says, I read you 34. Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. Right? That was the precept that we just gave. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. As I said, the book of John is different than the three Gospels. It's a merging of the two thoughts, the law and grace, to show us what Christ has done and how it's going to be applied to our lives in the the future. And it's very clear. He's giving the people that are under the law the choice. He's saying, you can come to the Son and he will free you, or you can stay in this bondage. That's the thing about John that is different than the Gospels, is that... I'm sorry, the Synoptic Gospels, they simply give you the law, doesn't really give you any choice in anything, and he tells you what's coming on you, and he's saying that this is what is coming for the people of Israel. He doesn't really explain anything beyond that. There is no church age doctrine in the Synoptic Gospels, but in John, he takes the law, and he takes the grace, and he puts them together, and he says, now here's the choice between the two. There is church age doctrine, which can be obtained if you will come to the Son. And if you do that, that's when the gospel suddenly become, I'm sorry, not the gospels, the epistles suddenly become relevant to you. It's because he's giving you that choice. The choice is made. We see in the book of Acts this transition from the law to grace, from Peter to Paul. We see, you know, all of this moving from Jew to Gentile. It's showing us this transition that was actually prefigured or pre-mentioned, I should say, in the book of John. Everything flows so smoothly until you get to the epistles. And then when you get to the epistles of Peter, which aren't really directed to us, they're directed to the Jews of the end times, they are still exactly the same thing. They're showing us the freedom that is given to the Jews, which they had missed all along. So everything about what the uh, uh, Bible, the way it's structured, is given to us to show us this marvelous thing which God is doing. And he's taken the Gentile-led church age and he's inserted it right here. It's going to be gone at the rapture. And then those words of Peter and James and the book of Hebrews are going to become so relevant to the Jewish people that do receive Jesus, that are left behind after the rapture. And they're going to say, we have these words to explain to us what we need to know. Because Paul's words, although they will still have significance, they always will, just as all scriptures God breathed, they won't have the same significance as the later epistles will to the Jewish people. They will start to see Christ in a new way because of those epistles. But right now, Paul is our marching order for the most part. Okay, um, let's see here. Where are we? Um, life application. If you have called on Jesus, 
then who is your Lord? Jesus, right? Okay. Do you want to become entangled again in a yoke of slavery? Okay, because he did the thing, right? He did the law. He was under that yoke. He was under the bondage or the, the burden of the law, and yet he fulfilled it on our behalf. And then he died in fulfillment of it. Why would we want to go back to something that he's already done? I've gone there. I've taken care of this problem for you. Trust in me, okay? So ask it again. Do you want to be entangled again in a yoke of slavery? The answer should be obvious. Of course not. Why somebody would post what they posted on that dietary laws uh, sermon? I, I, I can't even imagine. Why would you want to go through that? It makes no sense, but some people just they have a need in themselves to prove that they are able to satisfy God on their own merits. Okay, therefore, live as a bondservant of Christ, wholly committing yourself to his glorious headship. He has set you free. Now live in him as if you believe it, right? Live in him as it goes back to what uh, Sproul says in that when you'll listen to it eventually, where he says, I want you to go and repent of your arrogance. Mm believe it believe that he has freed you and you are free now that you've gotten rid of that burden you can worry about your rewards and losses okay actually paul says be anxious for nothing he says be your rewards and losses will be perfectly fair and you, you don't need to worry or be anxious even about those things it will be absolutely marvelous um verse 17 um you got any questions there burke you got something to uh to uh no i'm, I'm... Okay. no no what you're fidgeting over there. This thing about justification, he's justified this. Right. I, I just see this as a, a bookkeeping thing or your checkbook. Yeah. Okay, you got a debit over here. And on the debit side is Romans 5.12. Right. Now, there's one man's sin. We, we all inherit that sin. Right. 12. And on this other side is... Second Corinthians 5.21 made him to be sin for us. Who knew no but, sin? But then he takes Romans 5.1 and says, I'm going to put you over here and you're justified. Right. I mean, it's all of the Lord's doing. That's right. Us. You know, he, he takes us over here, puts us on the right side, on the credit side. Right. And then we get his righteousness. First Corinthians 1.30. Absolutely. He's made to us wisdom, righteousness, justification, sanctification. He, he's made to us those things. So I, I, you know, I see it as, as, a, as a term. The bookkeeping teacher said, "Don't ever tell me that it isn't doesn't apply in your life. If you go to the store and give the person five dollars, they make change. You're doing an accounting. That's right. Thing. So this accounting thing, we were in debt." Right. Now we're free. Now we're free. You know, the the it, next it, one. It's all the credit for the Lord. That's right. The next one, the accounting that he's referring to, has to be rewards and losses because everything, as you said, has been done by the Lord. Everything is of the Lord. All we have to do is receive it, which has already been defined in three, what was it, 17 or 321, whatever, that faith is not a work. He separated the two, so our faith is not a work, and that takes care of the problem that the uh, reformists have, where you say that you know you're predestined and I mean you're uh, regenerated in order to believe, and then you believe because if you believe apart from being regenerated, then that's a work. Well, no, he says it's not a work. It's, it's completely separate. That's right. It's it is not a work in any way, shape, or form to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. It's just what you do. He has made the offer, and we have to come to him, and we have to see, say, I accept the offer. Okay, let's go on to the next verse. <laughs> 17. 17. But thanks be to God. Oh, yes. Though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed 
the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Okay. In his customary excitement over the greatness of what God has done through Christ, Paul interjects a note of gratitude for what has occurred in the believer. But God be thanked in my version. He says, but thanks be to God. He had just previously shown the contrast between being a slave of sin to that of being a slave to righteousness. And now he th his thanks go forth because though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. In other words, you believed, you received, and you moved from being a slave of sin to something else. Yes. You know, the, that verse, I was reading all those separations. They said the verse separation came in 1500 or whatever it was. But I like, you know, I put exclamation marks. Oh, yes. Thanks to God. You exclamation bet. marks. You, you know? betcha. You know, I, they can have theirs if they want, but... You know, I have mine. <laughs> you betcha. Wow, wow, wow. How you doing there? Doing great. How about yourself? Couldn't be better. Just put it right there. Right here? Yeah. Yeah, we got a, a birthday party for one of our ladies here. Well, so, happy uh, birthday. Thank you. It's only 91. That, that young lady. Ah, that's young. 91? She told me she was 27. Oh, hey, I'm 27. There you go. There you go. Well, thank you very much. Have nice. a great one. Thank you now. Enjoy. Yeah, we, we had to have a... And now, just so you know, the money from this one was still left over from oh, what the sorry. people Ocello gave us. So... Um, we're we're going to thank the Lord for them when we get done with this verse as well, because, you know, but this is for Pat's birthday here. So uh, let's see here. Um, okay. Yes. Before hearing the gospel, we were all slaves to sin. This includes all people and was what necessitated the cross. But through allowing the truth of the Christian message, that form of doctrine, Paul says, to enter our heart, we have been delivered from this bondage. The word for form here is the Greek word typon, or typon, you could say. This is a pattern or a mold, like a type. You can hear the word there. In Hebrews 8, 5, it's used this way. Hang on a second here. Hebrews 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. Hebrews 8, 5 says, um, Who served as a copy, a type, and shadow of the heavenly things. You had the things on the earth which were made which were only a type of what was in heaven so it's the same idea here you have this word type on this is a pattern or a mold okay as you can see moses was instructed to use the exact pattern that he was shown there was to be no deviation from the instruction the reason why is because they were a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things we should have the same exact idea in our heads about the new testament instruction we are delivered and we are sanctified through the pattern which is set. The question is, what is the pattern? The answer is simple. The teachings found in our instruction manual, which is the New Testament epistles, the type and the shadow. The gospels show us who Jesus is, what he did, and what transpired based on his work. The book of Acts shows us how these things became established among the various people groups and some of the why of what Jesus did but they contain very, very little instruction on how to apply what has been revealed. It is the epistles which show us how to do so. They give shape to the form. One could think of the epistles as a portion of the mold into which was poured a substance. This would then conform to the shape of the mold. The substance is the believer. The word is the mold. Our doctrine for conversion and our doctrine for continued growth must come from the mold, or it isn't at all the pattern which is set down by God. God has given us the type, and we are to follow the type. Okay, for this reason, it's imperative 
absolutely imperative, which is why it's so nice to have people show up at Bible study to read, ponder, and conform to these letters. That which fails to conform to the mold must be chiseled away, sanded, and smoothed out. And that which is poured into the wrong mold is an unacceptable vessel. Pour yourself into the law of Moses, it doesn't fit. It's the wrong vessel. Pour yourself into the synoptic gospels, it's the wrong vessel. Pray that you may be found worthy to stand before the Son of Man. It doesn't fit. It makes no sense based on what Christ has done. We will stand before the Son of Man, and we are found worthy, not because of ourselves. We don't have to pray about it. We simply receive it by faith. It's already done. The mold must fit, or it's not the right mold, okay? It'll be entirely rejected. God will not accept works for salvation. He will not accept them. That's why I feel so bad for these people that make these type of comments. They think that they're somehow meriting God's favor by reinserting things that Christ has done on our behalf. He has filled that mold. You have a mold called the law, right? And you pour into that all of your works and you keep pouring them in and you do it for 1500 years and it never fills the mold. And Christ comes along and he lives his life and the mold fills up perfectly. Absolutely perfectly, the law is fulfilled in Christ. The mold is complete and you can't get anything else into there. So if you have a mold over here which says you are now to follow this pattern and you keep trying to put it into here, it will not work. It is done, it is finished. The mold is set, Christ has done it. And to now be clear, we yes. the folks that erroneously go back and try and do that, who have come to the Lord. Right, oh, there's, if they have come to the Lord and then they go back onto the law, they're a debtor to the law. They are going to spend the rest of their life in misery. They're not gonna lose their salvation, but they will certainly lose all of their rewards. They have rejected the grace of Christ, and where do you get your rewards from? You get them from living in the grace of Christ. But if they are saved, they will not lose their salvation. It's the ones that are probably not saved that are, you know, trying to work their way to heaven and telling all these other people you need to do this and that. Those people are completely out of the mold. If they have not come to Christ by faith at some point in their life, they're going to get a huge surprise. They're going to get a giant surprise. I called on Jesus all day long every day. Well, you did it wrong. You tried to fill the mold, and the mold is full, okay? So, there you go. Um, let's see here. Where was I? Um, uh, the book of Acts, okay, uh, pour into the mold. And um, for this reason, it's imperative to read and ponder the word. I said that that which fails to conform to the mold has to be chiseled away. This is seen in the Old Testament worship, and it is no different in the church. Conformity to the doctrine of Christ must be realized in order for us to conform to Christ as individuals. It is conforming to this form which delivers us, which directs us in sanctification, and which will ultimately lead us to glorification. It's the mold which God has set for the dispensation of Christ. Life application, if you want to be conformed to the image of Christ, read and apply your Bible to your life and do it in context, okay? Yes, that's All right. Important part. Okay, um, we want to uh, have Burke thank us for uh, Bless the Food and also uh, say a little special prayer for uh, our, our sister that's 91 years old. Wow. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your work in Calvary. You took all of our ugly sins, all of the world. Thank you for that. And then you give us your righteousness. Thank you for that. And we have a sister here today that's 
been on the way a long while. I don't know exactly how long, but hmm. I know she's been on the way a long time and celebrating 91 years. So not going to be as today. She's going to be happy when she sees you more so than today. We just thank you for that. Thank you for our blessed hope in you. Hmm. Help us each one walk pleasing in your sight. Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, let me back this baby up. And we're all getting older together. Yes, we are. I love it. Every second. Getting older is wonderful. Okay, we're going to go to break. Let's see. And we're there. Okay, say goodbye to everybody. We're closing a little early today. Sorry about that, but we got to have a birthday party. We love you. Have a great week, okay? Bye-bye. It's all. Um, it'll be about a minute. It takes about a minute to shut off. Well, I was wondering whether, whether I was drooling from the word or the, uh, the smell of the pizza. What's that guy's name now that you told me to work for those people? Work for what? Jeff. Oh, Jeff Swanson. S W A N S O N. Tom, are you leaving? Is he leaving? No, he's coming back. Oh, okay. Oh, listen. We have mangoes. Those have to be eaten either today or put in the fridge and meet in the next day or so. They're ripe. 